before we get started, I'm going to be perfectly honest with y'all. I'm nervous. I get nervous this week as I was studying, and I would tell myself, it's just a Sunday school lesson. All week long, that worked. It calmed me down. Today, I was sitting up here, and I got nervous, and I thought, it's just a Sunday school lesson, and that voice in my head betrayed me. It said, yeah, but it's a big, big, big class. said we're going to look at 1st Corinthians chapter 15 I'm going to concentrate today on verse 10 it seems that we may well be living in a generation when there's never been more confusion about what it means to be a Christian and sadly the confusion appears to sometimes come from when in the church as well as outside the church. We sometimes confuse our faith with a political position or one particular stance on one ethical matter or another. God's grace will not be, cannot be, contained by our man-made traditions, by social norms, Grace compels the church to something greater than being a moral referee here on this earth, spending our time placing people in moral straitjackets as though behavioral perfection would earn us a better place in heaven. In this week's biblical text, Paul is simply sharing what his encounter with faith and grace has created in him. And that's all any of us can do. We can share our story of the Christian faith. We may quote others. We may even quote scripture. But it's the faith that we've encountered and are willing to confess that gives our witness its needed realness. We can and should tell others of the Jesus we know. And then we should leave it to God to sort out what becomes of our words. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <coughs> verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. As with any New Testament, or Old Testament scripture, we can spend our time dissecting the language and the grammatical meanings of each word. That method of study is very worthwhile. Our own pastor is a master of this. However, sometimes we can gain a worthwhile meaning of a text by stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. That's what we're going to do today as we explore the life-changing grace that Paul mentions three times here in this one verse. We know the scriptures proclaim that God is gracious, but many struggle to believe that. Others wonder what grace actually looks like. If we take seriously the righteousness of God and the magnitude of our sin every day, we might find ourselves asking God some questions like this. Do you still love me? Or why are you so patient with me, God? Or even, why haven't you killed me 
for what I've done. As our hatred for and awareness of our sin increases, we desperately need a biblical view of the grace of God. We need the scriptures to paint a clear picture of who God is and how much he loves us in Christ Jesus. We need to see the God of the scriptures who is so gracious that it blows our minds and bringing us to repentance and faith. So let's begin by thinking about our own selves. How do we think about God and his grace? In Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, the Israelites show us a warped view of who God is. In verses 1 through 5, the Lord offers a tender rebuke to them, and he asks, What have I done to you? And he goes on to remind them of how he delivered it out of the land of Egypt. And he reminds them of other righteous and gracious acts that he's done on the Israelites' behalf. God is reminding them of his own gracious nature, a nature that they have experienced many times in the past. Yet their response in verses 6 through 7 is dumbfounding, but it's also painfully familiar to me. Let me read you their response. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Instead of responding in gratitude, they told on themselves. Whether they meant to or not, they did. They told on themselves. They paint this picture of God that makes him seem demanding, cruel, and even impossible to satisfy. Certainly not a gracious God. The tone of their response is unclear to me. We could assume either that the speaker is genuinely trying to repent, or we could assume that the speaker is frustrated with God, that he's scornful, that he's angry. But their disposition is beside the point. The point is that their view of God doesn't line up with reality. And I, sad to say, am all too familiar with their incorrect view of God and his grace. For me, it's usually during times that I'm not studying the Bible as I should. I'm not spending time in prayer with God in my daily life that I find myself holding an incorrect view of God's grace, just as the Israelites have displayed here in Micah chapter 6. We need to remember that God's grace is not like man's grace. I'd like to talk about the difference for just a few minutes. Our communion with God, or lack thereof, will often affect how we view God's grace. A worldly view of grace can be developed out of our experiences with each other. Whether it's a parent, a relative, a friend, or just our general view of mankind, our experience with sinful and broken people can, if we let it, 
affect our view of our holy and righteous God. Humanly speaking, we're unacquainted with grace, mercy, and truth that's untainted by sin. We've experienced grace from people, but we've never met a person that embodied grace perfectly. I read this week an article on how we love and show grace apart from God, just as human beings. And two things stood out to me about natural man and the human motivation to forgive others. Number one, natural man is motivated to be gracious because man is aware, at least to some extent, that he's just as guilty as the person standing in front of him in need of grace. And number two, natural man forgives others because he often only knows a small part of all that the other person is actually guilty of. I'm sure there's even more motivations for showing grace, but from these two that I read to you alone, we discover two factors that play enormous parts in our ability to forgive others apart from God, our own sin and our own ignorance. God, however, is neither motivated by his sinfulness nor is he enabled by his ignorance. He is holy and righteous. God is completely void of sin and full of goodness and love. He's omniscient and never made a mistake and he can do anything other than fail. He is perfect in all his ways. If God were a doctor, he'd never lose a patient. If he were a lawyer, he would never lose a case. Nevertheless, when we, his sinful and rebellious prodigal children, wallow in our sin and grieve God's spirit, he calls us to repentance with open and loving arms, saying, Come home, child. Come home. And God is not ignorant of all the ways that we have sinned against him. He knows everything we've ever done, and he's able to stomach it. His knowledge of who we really are will never hinder his love for us. He's even aware of the evil behind our best and most righteous deeds. The intimacy by which the Lord knows us but is able to lovingly embrace us as his children is supernatural. God's grace is amazing. So let us make sure our view of God's grace is based upon what God has revealed of himself in his word. When we think about God's grace, avoid that worldly view. Let's make sure we don't have our own view. But when we think of God's grace, we need to remember what God has revealed of his grace. It brings me joy to know that I serve a God whose love and grace can and does baffle me. We should get that view of God's grace from what God said of himself in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, the message of this grace has been proclaimed. 
If we look at Exodus chapter 34, we see that our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, giving iniquity, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This grace we see in Scripture is distinct to the Christian faith. No other religion emphasizes divine grace the way the Bible does, from the Old Testament to the New, beginning to end. This is why reading the Bible and praying to God is essential to Christian growth. <coughs> the less we read the Bible, the less we pray to God, the more blemished our view of God can become. If you want the grace of God to blow your mind again, read your Bibles. One of my favorite songs, actually my favorite song, and I ask for us to sing it today, is Amazing Grace. Sometimes I will get on the internet and I'll listen to dozens of different people singing Amazing Grace one after the other. Yeah, I probably get on people's nerves doing that. Amazing Grace over and over again. And when I do, I always listen for a change in the first line. Sometimes I do hear Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. The word soul substituted for the word wretch. Why? Because the word wretch is considered by some to be demeaning to human beings. When I hear that song, I can't help but think of John Newton, the writer of the song. Brother Bob has shared Newton's story with us several times. When I hear the song, I think of that story. Newton was an immoral slave trader, a blasphemer, a man who knew he was a wretch and who had wept over the depths of his sins. Only because he understood that fact so profoundly could he then understand why God's grace to him was so amazing. And hence, the immortal song that he gave to us all, Amazing Grace. Grace doesn't minimize or ignore the awful reality of our sin. Instead, grace emphasizes the depths of sin by virtue of the unthinkable price paid to redeem us from it. Paul said, if men were good enough, then Christ died for no purpose. If we don't come to grips with the hideous reality of our own sin, God's grace won't ever seem amazing. In God's grace, we see his call to sinners. God's word tells us that Christ died for utterly unworthy people. You can search scripture, but the fact that he died for us is never given as proof of our value as wonderful people. Rather, it's a demonstration of his immeasurable and unearned love, such boundless love that he would die for rotten people, wretches like you and me, to free us from our sin. And because grace is incomprehensible to us, God's grace we instinctively search for conditions so we won't look so bad 
And God's offer won't seem so strange and unimaginable. By the time we're done qualifying the gospel, we're no longer unworthy. We're no longer powerless. We're no longer wretches. And sadly, grace is no longer grace. The worst thing we can teach people is that they're good without Jesus. The truth is, God doesn't offer grace to good people any more than doctors offer life-saving surgery to healthy people. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Grace is most certainly without cost to us. But it's not cheap. It was bought at a tremendous cost to Jesus Christ. A cost that will be visible for eternity in heaven as we behold his nail-scarred hands and feet. The grace Paul speaks of in these verses is life-changing. You and I weren't merely sick in our sins. We were dead in our sins. That means I'm not just unworthy of salvation. I'm not capable of earning it. Corpses can't raise themselves from the grave. What a relief to realize that my salvation is completely the result of God's grace. It cannot be earned by good works. It can't be lost by my bad ones. My salvation is completely in the hands of God. And there's only one requirement for enjoying God's grace. Being broken and knowing it. That's why Jesus said, Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Our justification by faith in Christ satisfies the demands of God's holiness. It exchanges our sins for Christ's righteousness. When Jesus saves us, we become new creatures in him. Now we can draw on God's power to overcome evil. We start to see sin for what it really is, bondage, not freedom. The old summary is correct. God's children have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are all grounded solidly in the exact same place. God's grace. We also see from scripture that grace hunts down our sin. The grace of Jesus isn't just an add-on that enhances our lives before we were saved. It causes a radical transformation from being sin enslaved to being righteousness liberated. Paul writes of the life-transforming and sin-overcoming power of grace in Titus chapter 2. Let me read you verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Don't ever tell yourselves you might as well go ahead and sin since God will forgive you. This cheapens grace. Grace that trivializes sin is not true grace. And Paul also makes that clear. What, can, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Other than Bob Kerr, one of my favorite preachers is John Piper. And John Piper had this to say about grace. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. No sin is small that crucified Christ. Sin matters. Yet, thankfully, grace has power over sin. It offers not only forgiveness, but transformed character. Every sin pales in comparison to God's grace to us in Christ. Let me say that one again. Every sin pales in comparison to God's grace to us in Christ. Forgiveness and the power to overcome sin are both ours through grace. There is a sense in which God's grace is unconditional, and that is we don't deserve it. Yet when we repent, ask for forgiveness, and place our faith in him, we receive grace in return. If we see God as the one who does the work of convicting us and drawing us to repentance, this helps us to further understand just how amazing his grace really is. Sinclair Ferguson says, The spiritual life is lived between two polarities, our sin and God's grace. The discovery of the former brings us to seek the latter. The work of the latter illuminates the depths of the former and causes us to seek yet more grace. Let's look again at 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. Many of Paul's plans, his determination to suffer for Christ and plant the church and get in prison and endure beatings, all those came to reality by grace. Grace did that. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace is the key, the power of grace moving into our lives, turning our resolves into hard work, hard work that's free and joyful and satisfying and far from legalistic. Grace doesn't produce legalism. It's grace. It produces beautiful fruit, good works. Yes, grace is power, powerful. Grace moves in. It enables me to fulfill the Christian life.
But there's another thing we need to know about grace, God's grace. Not only is it a power, but it has a past, present, and future. Grace has been in this room since you got here, sustaining your faith, sustaining your breath. I'm talking about unbelievers and believers when I say that. There's been no active shooter this morning, no bomb threat, the ceiling hasn't fell in, the building hasn't caught fire, nobody has yet, to my knowledge, had a heart attack, and on and on and on the blessings go. We've been blessed with the grace of God in this room for the last 30 minutes or so. That's past grace. That already happened, but it's still important to our lives. And we have a little time to go yet in this service. And my guess is that most of us will live to the end. Maybe not, but we will probably live to the end of the service. And maybe even more good will be done for us. So grace is coming to us in the next five minutes and all the rest of the day. Therefore, each day, each hour, each minute, we have more grace to be thankful for than the previous. Recently, Shammer and I took a trip to the mountains to ride our side by side. I've ridden four-wheelers for years while out hunting or on Jim's farm, but this kind of ATV riding is a little different. The trails through the mountains are designed to bring a certain level of difficulty, challenge, and fun to the ride. I downloaded a map ahead of our trip from the internet. And trails on the map are rated so that you will have some kind of idea of what you're going to run into while you're out there. So, alone, we began out to take our ride, and I definitely chose the easiest trails. Easiest trails, the map said. Well, I was surprised at the first floorboard deep creek crossing, the badly rutted mud hole and the steep rocky climbs with loose gravel. If this is the easiest trail, I thought, maybe we're in over our heads. So I eased into some of those first obstacles with caution as we began. But with each obstacle passed, my confidence in the ability of that ranger to get this inexperienced trail driver through tough and tight spots grew and grew. The first time, with it appeared we were getting stuck. I locked the rear differential and off we went again. The second time, I put the thing in four wheel drive. The third, I got out in the mud and we used the winch. But the more trouble that we got into, the more power and options the side by side seemed to have to offer us. And finally, that last time when we got stuck, thinking we were there all alone riding, Newfound friends, recent strangers on the trail came along and they pulled us through. We were not as alone as it had appeared and we became more confident as we progressed down those trails. How could we not with the success we were having? Grace and faith work together the same way. Power is going to keep arriving in my life forever. Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees both my everlasting life and my moment-by-moment -moment 
perseverance to get there. Remember, the Israelites, I mentioned them at the beginning, their misguided view of God found in Micah chapter 6. They had forgotten all the past grace of God. They even ignored God as he tried to remind them of his gracious, gracious nature. And that hindered their faith in God as they were moving forward. Well, if Jesus didn't do what I'm trusting him to have done in the past, I have nothing in my future but trouble on my way forward. But if he did what he promised he did, namely, die in my place, then I am eternally saved, and grace will continue to work out wonderful things in my life and yours if we've placed our trust in him alone. When we say we trust God or we say we believe his promises, we mean that we're satisfied with all that God is for us, past, present, and future. Here's another thing Paul had to say in Philippians chapter 4. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think that when Paul says he has learned, he is both reflecting on all the past grace that he has received and he's looking upon God's promises for the future. Paul can then face the work of establishing the church. He can face the hardships ahead. He can face them with confidence, knowing that God will provide the power as Paul has need of it. And those all things that Paul mentions, those include hunger and being brought low, the bad times, as well as the good times. And so what's the secret that he has learned? The secret he's learned is to trust the ever-arriving, strengthening power of Jesus. Because he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying that the secret of contentment, the secret of satisfaction, is trusting the promise of Jesus. The promise of Jesus. I am going to strengthen you. You're mine. I love you. And as we believe that truth, moment by moment, as we walk through life, that truth will also form our thoughts and plans as it did Paul's. We can trust this promise to come in and empower us. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In his letter to the church at Rome, Paul writes that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, in God's purpose, Christ took upon himself the nails of the cross, nails that should have been ours. It was the resurrection of Christ that completed God's work to accomplish our salvation. Grace at just the right time. So 
So as we close, let's look once again at 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul could say his grace toward me was not in vain because Paul had become a vessel of grace himself. In Romans 1, 5, and 6, Paul writes that it was through Christ's resurrection that we have received grace, grace that empowers us to call other people to faith. In other words, faith is not merely intellectual assent to certain doctrinal precepts. And being a Christian is not simply for our personal benefit. The faith and grace that poured out on Christ's empty tomb has given us more than something good to believe. It gives us something good to share with the world. To be Christian means that we should, like Paul, see ourselves as more than saved. We're more than receptacles to hold God's grace. It means to see ourselves as vessels of grace and that we too are to be constantly pouring out grace on the world in which God has given us to live. We all have memories of occasions when at just the right time God provided mercy, grace, faith, direction, and hope. When we reflect on those moments, we can't help but thank God over and over. Correspondingly, our gratitude should compel each of us to share what we've come to know of Christ with others in any way that God has gifted us to share. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.